We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, good evening. When I was in high school, my mom, it's when Garth Brooks's mega hit came out, Unanswered Prayers. And I remember it was just one of my mom's pet peeves. And every time it would come on the radio, she would say, Chris, there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. But sometimes God says no, but he never leaves them unanswered. And it just, it almost ruined the song for me growing up, you know. But uh, as, as we approach this text tonight that we read earlier about prayer, I think it's a, it's a passage that maybe there's a lot of confusion about, uh, that, that if you misunderstand this passage, it, it can affect your view of God, it can affect your view of, of who He is and how He operates and what we can expect from Him. And so it's important, first of all, that we put this passage in the context of the larger series, Life on the Kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount, and what Jesus has been saying to this point. That if you remember, we started out, it, it talked about Jesus going through the countryside, that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and as he goes onto the mountain, he starts saying hard things. And he's talking about the kingdom of God and the difference in the kingdom of God and the religious expectations of the day. And so he spent time talking about the priorities of the kingdom painting a picture of a disciple, a true disciple, who's motivated not with external religiosity and just being a good person or trying to be a moral guy, but, but someone whose heart has actually been changed. He said a lot of hard words about our motives and, and how what God looks at is actually our intentions. He looks at what's going on in the inside and what our motivations are. And as he's done that, he's, he's, he's pointed to the fact that righteousness is not external. It's in the heart. And as we become conformed to him, those things start to change. That our righteousness isn't merely a rule-keeping, but it's, it's an internal change that's taking place. And we begin to be more merciful. We begin to be people who follow him. That we're not people who are anxious about all that's going on around us, but we trust Him. That we're not seeking to build earthly treasure, but we're seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. That we're not building treasure here, that we're storing up eternal treasure in heaven. And so, I don't know if you remember, but back in, in, in our first weeks, we were talking about how what Jesus really offers is almost an upside-down kingdom. That everything in our world is build, 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 accomplish, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. So that we are so prone to measure our faithfulness merely by external standards. But, but in Jesus's kingdom, it's all upside down. That we have status in his kingdom, not because of what we do, but because of who he is. That our motivations aren't moved by what accomplishes the most for us, but what honors Him. And so as we see this full priority shift, it's important that we understand that as we come to this passage tonight. You know, last week we looked at a, at a tough passage that, that really got in our business about judging others and how we don't judge others from a heart of self-righteousness or from a position 
of hypocrisy that, that Jesus says you need, you need to take the plank out of your own eye. But then he does talk about removing the speck from your brother's eye. So it's kind of in the context of that, in the context of the ministry that we are actually invited to do and to participate in, that our role and responsibility as we live in community sometimes includes confronting others, sometimes includes proclaiming the kingdom. It's in the context of that that we need some real wisdom. When he talks in that closing passage from last week about casting our pearl before swines and, and giving to the dogs things that are holy, we talked about how that sometimes means when you're sharing with someone who's scoffing, that we don't continue to put the truth in front of them just to have it pummeled. Sometimes we shake the dust off our feet and move on. But the thing is, you and I lack the wisdom to know when to do that. We lack the wisdom in and of ourselves to do ministry effective to people around us. I don't always know when it's the right time to go talk to someone about a problem that I see. I don't always know even the motivations in my own heart and the problems I'm having in my own heart before I'm in any sort of shape to go talk to them. And I certainly don't always have the sensitivity to know when it's time to move on and just to say to someone, hey, you know, if, if you come to a point later that you want to talk about this, then come back and talk to me about it. I don't always know that. So it's important to understand that as God is conforming us, as Jesus is helping us understand the priorities of his kingdom, he's asking us to minister, but he recognizes we don't have the ability, the wisdom, the wherewithal, the might, the power, any of that in and of ourselves. And so with that mindset, we come to this next passage, and he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Ask, seek, knock. These are all present tense commands, which means that this should be our ongoing posture. Asking, seeking, knocking. Ask, seek, knock. When do I ask, seek, and knock? Always. I'm always asking. I'm always seeking. I'm always knocking. Um, there's an underlying assumption coming into this passage, though, that you're committed to the things that God's committed to. Because if you're asking, seeking, knocking just with your own selfish motivations, that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage assumes, and Jesus is assuming when he says that, that your priorities are in line with his priorities. It's interesting that the tone almost changes here, I think, because when you look at verses 5, 6, and 7, there's a lot of prohibition. There's a lot of challenging your heart. There's a lot of confrontation. Jesus is sort of digging in and cleaning out the wounds. But the tone here is he's going to shift to a more positive tone. Ask, seek, knock. The kingdom standards are high. All that we've read is high. But as Christ followers, that shouldn't discourage us. When we read about our motivations, when we read about what Jesus demands of us, that's not to increase our anxiety. Because it doesn't rely on my ability to do it anyway. Ask, 
seek, knock. That if I'm going to be able to do this thing, if I'm going to be able to live the Christian life, if I'm going to be able to effectively do the ministry that he asks me to do, ask, seek, knock. You see, I think one of the, as a missions pastor, a lot of times I spend time, we look at different cultures around the world. And we look at the, 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 the ways that we're different and the ways that we're similar and, you know, things like the way we function with time. For any of you who've traveled overseas, you notice that, that, that here we're pretty punctual on the clock. If I ask you to go to, to, to meet me for lunch and I'm five minutes late, it's usually not a big deal. If I'm 15 minutes late, you're starting to wonder what's going on. If I'm a half hour late, you assumed I've had a wreck or that I've blown you off. If we go to Latin America, those numbers change by a great deal. Instead of five minutes late, it might be 30 minutes late before you start to think anything. For the conveniently late, it may be closer to an hour that you're fine when I show up and just assume something happened. And it's more like two hours when you start to worry that something may have happened. It's just a cultural difference. It's not necessarily right or wrong. Well, in our culture, I think we have some of our own blind spots. And, and I think one of the blind spots of our culture is that we have a very achievement-based mentality. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, that, that we talk about the self-made man. We talk about ambition as a, as a means to accomplish an end. We congratulate those that, that pour themselves into a business to get promoted. And, and so much of our culture is just built on that idea. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, that, that we get production out of that mindset. And so a lot of what makes our country great is that very thing. The challenge is when we transition that to our spiritual life and we assume that God operates on the same economy. So that if I'm going to do ministry, here's the 10 goals I need to set. Here's the 10 things I need to do to accomplish those goals. And then, voila, I produce spiritual fruit. But that's not the way the kingdom works. Remember, it's the upside-down world. That if I'm going to be effective, if I'm going to be fruitful, if I'm going to honor God, ask, seek, knock. It's not on me. It's not my ability. It's a persistent, ongoing prayer over a period of time. The, the, what Jesus is talking about here is, is, is just, it's, in a lot of ways, it's just a normal habit of life. And there's no specific things he's referring to when he says it, ask and it shall be given to you. It's just the idea that this thing you're praying for is what God's going to give you. It's, it's sort of a generic it but it's a habit of life. It's normal every day. I just envision the idea of conversation, that it's an ongoing conversation with God that's conformed. Remember back in the Lord's Prayer, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's operating with the assumption that you're valuing what he values. And so this conversation should be normal. And, and I think it should be kingdom-minded, that we're thinking through what is it that God wants to accomplish? What is it that God wants to do? 
That idea, you know, I remember early, you know, the guy that was discipling me in college said, what is it that you're, that you're asking God to do that if he doesn't come through, you're going to look like a failure? Do I just pray, Lord, help me wake up in the morning, Lord, help me get to work tomorrow, just ordinary everyday things that are going to happen? Or do I have a bigger vision for God's kingdom that says, Lord, come through on this thing? That God wants us to trust Him, to come out on that ledge in a way that He can answer. We need to be straining in our prayer to see the Lord's will done. Not just privately, but corporately. You know, we had first Thursday prayer this last Thursday. First Thursday of every month, Denton Bible, we pray at 6 a.m. here in the fellowship hall. There probably aren't a lot of scheduling conflicts at 6 a.m. on a Thursday morning for you guys. But, but it's an opportunity to come together, to pray out loud one another, to pray for what God will do in our lives, to pray for what God will do in the lives of our church, that it says something about our priorities that we would ask God to do these things, that we're not trying to accomplish with our own might, with our own power, with our own strength, what only He can do. So it's not just a private prayer. It's corporate prayer. Prayer with my friends and my family. How often do you stop down in, when you're talking about something and say, hey, can we pray about that? Hey, you've got this struggle going on. Can we pray about it? Hey, we want this thing to happen together. Let's pray about it. This should be a normal part of our life. And we'll go on to see why. But, but prayer should be as normal for us as breathing. But as we think about our motivations for prayer, James says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and count and obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask... And you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James knew my heart. I want to pray for what I want. I want to have what I want. And he says, why do you have these fights and these quarrels? Because you're selfishly seeking what's yours. And when God doesn't give it to you, you fight, you quarrel, you murder. Again, just re-emphasizing a lot of the misunderstanding of this ask, seek, the, I'm sorry. A lot of this about ask, seek, and knock is that we're not pursuing our own things here. That the basis of this prayer is my union with Christ and the accomplishment of His purposes instead of my own selfish cravings. Verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. The for there means because. Why do we ask, seek, knock? Because if you ask, seek, and knock, you'll receive what you've been asked, seeking, and knocking for. Notice there's no direct object. It says you will receive. It doesn't say what you will receive. 
The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it'll be open. That everyone in this context, in verse 8, when he says everyone who seeks, he's talking about citizens of the kingdom. That Jesus assumes that these are citizens of the kingdom. He assumes that we have union in Christ. I remember the first time kind of wrestling through this idea of what's God's will. How do we know God's will? How do I know what decision to make? You know, as a college student, that's the most important question you, you ask. And someone for the first time read Psalm 37, 4 to me and said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, how does that work? Well, if I'm delighted in the Lord, if I'm enjoying union with Christ, then he's conforming my desires so that the things I actually pray for are going to be his desires. That if I'm delighting in the Lord, then the things that my heart delight in are going to be the things that he delights in. So, of course, he's going to give them to me. And I think that's the, the underlying operation that's happening here in this passage, ask, seek, and knock, because everyone who does receives. It's the idea that you're asking, seeking, and knocking for the very things, the very priorities of the kingdom of God. And so you read back through the earlier chapters and you say, how's my heart doing? Am I praying for those things? Am I asking for those things? Am I seeking and a knocking, that we are praying for what we can't do. When our prayers aren't answered in our original desires, a lot of times it's because we don't share God's perspective, that we don't share His value, that we're praying and asking for the wrong things, that we don't ultimately understand what His good gifts actually are. And Jesus is going to give us a couple illustrations here. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent. This would be a really bad practical joke, right? For a kid to come and say, hey, dad, I'm hungry. Could you bake me some bread? For the dad to go out in the backyard and get a stone that looks like a loaf of bread and pretend to cook it and to put it in front of the son? Or for the son to say, I want some fish. And instead of giving him a fish, you bring him a serpent. Luke's going to say, Jesus in another context says, ask for an egg and he gives him a scorpion. The idea is deception. But, but what do bread and serpents have to do with one another? You know, one of my kids probably eight or nine years ago, we were going to a doctor and, and the doctor was wanting to try some, some different forms of therapy. Um, and knowing the way the, the medical world works, you know, if, if you have a condition, there's going to be lots of people out there marketing all sorts of products that will solve everything, right? Whether it's an essential oil or a, or a bath. I mean, it's just anything that we can market, we'll put out there and market it. And, and as we were pursuing this avenue of treatment, I remember the doctor, it's kind of how I knew he was a Christian, he said, okay, when we're going to 
pursue this treatment. We're not gonna, we're not gonna discover any, we're not gonna use any rocks and we're not gonna use any serpents. And at first he jolted me for a second because I was in a medical office. I wasn't used to hearing this kind of thing. But then he said, he said, with rocks, we're not going to use something that's worthless. That a lot of these products that are out on the market are basically snake oil. That they're marketed to solve this problem, but they don't do a thing. There's no test. There's no evidence that any of this works. And so we're not going to do worthless things. So Jesus says, which of you, if you had a son that asked for some bread, would give him a rock, he would say, Jesus is not going to give you something that's worthless. And then the doc said, and we're not going to, we're not going to give him any snakes. That some of these treatments that are actually out here will actually harm your son. Some of these treatments that are out here actually will worsen the condition. So Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks you for a fish, you know, it's interesting, it's it's agrarian here, He, he talks about bread and fish, which would have been basic staples for these people. You know, having a diet with meat would be meat, beef, would be really unlikely. So Jesus is talking about bread and fish, just everyday staples. But which of your sons that's asking for a fish, would he give a serpent? Would he give something dangerous to? That God's not going to give you anything that's worthless when you pray, and he's not going to give you anything that's dangerous or harmful when you pray. Why? Read on. If you then, who are evil, notice he he says you, he doesn't say we. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who answer him? You know, as we think about who we are as fallen humans. I don't know your hearts, you don't know my heart, but I know my heart. It's capable of wickedness. And yet if my kids ask me for something, I'm not gonna intentionally hurt them. So as a fallen sinner, imagine if I feel that way and you feel that way about your own kids, how could a good and loving father do anything other than give us good things. That that he doesn't always give us what we want, though. He does say in verse 11, he says, your father give good things to those who ask him. And a lot of what we want to understand in this passage comes to that. That that think about the parent. If, if, If I told you about a parent, and I can be this parent sometimes, but a parent who, you know, the kid comes and says, hey, dad, I want more money. Sure, here you go. Dad, I want more candy. Sure, here you go. Dad, I want more free time. Sure, here you go. Am I a loving dad? Not always. A good dad doesn't always say yes to everything that the kids want because he understands sometimes that the yes isn't actually good. So that when Jesus said that God's going to give us good things, he means that in the truest 
purest sense. And in the context of this passage, things of the kingdom, life in the kingdom. That, that as a matter of fact, Paul's going to say in Ephesians, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is a lavish God that can pour it out on you. He delights in you. He loves you. He wants you to have what's good, what's best, period. Not what you want, but what's best. And he will give you what's best. I think about Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about the thorn in the flesh though, right? And he says, he, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm sure from Paul's perspective, he's like, Lord, why won't you take this from me? But he had the wisdom to say, but God said no. That I actually have an opportunity to demonstrate my greatness through you, through your weakness. I can accomplish more through you, Paul, in your weakness than to have you at full strength. And again, that, that messes with our minds because we don't tend to think that way. We tend to think, how do I be more efficient? How do I be better? How do I be healthier so that I can do more? But God often works through our weaknesses. And there's nothing magical. Paul's, Paul didn't say after three times, you, you pray three times and you move on as if that's some prescriptive thing that we need to do. The point is just, Paul prayed and God made it clear, I'm not going to take this thorn in the flesh away from you because I'm going to use it to demonstrate. And so that Paul's able to go on that passage and say, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We all have those prayers, right? Things that we wanted to happen. I remember almost finished with seminary, my desire to move to, to Texas had been to come to Young Guns, to go to our seminary and to return to Tennessee and, and to plant a church or to be a part of a church plant. And there were two or three opportunities that came along. One of them was exactly what we were looking for. It was an opportunity to plant a church in Knoxville where I'd gone to school and where we wanted to go because it's beautiful. Our friends were all there. And this was exactly the thing I had been praying about since I left the University of Tennessee, that we would go back and I wanted to go plant this church. And, and John Bryson called me from Little Rock. He, was, he had finished the internship there at Fellowship Little Rock and introduced me to a guy who was going to plant a church and he had decided to plant the church in Knoxville. And so Antonia and I started praying and I, I started journaling about this opportunity and it was so obvious that this is exactly where God would take us. I mean, it was, it was the life map plan that we had drawn out. And, and so we met with the, the couples that were going to do the, the project, and we started moving down the road. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was a huge roadblock that just shut everything down. And it was, it was a hurtful time. I mean, it was a time that hurt a great deal. And God made it really clear that that was not going to be a part of our life. And a lot of times when God does that, he doesn't help you see the reason why. He doesn't 
give us, even on this earth, a lot of times we don't see why he did what he did. But he shut us down. And, and I would say after 20 or 15 years looking back, it's one of the greatest things that happened for me to be able to stay here in Denton to continue work with our BTCP students, both here in the States and overseas, that God's got me exactly where he wanted me. And, and the church plant ended up being a pretty, a pretty heavy failure, catastrophic. Um, and, and again, it's not that God owed me that. It's not that that's even, that has anything to do with why he kept me here, but I can trust at the end of the day. And I remember though it was a really hard time knowing and having confidence that God's got us exactly where he wanted. That these circumstances were so clear that there's nothing we could have done to over, to, to, to push this thing through so we can rest assured that we're exactly where God wants us. Doesn't mean it was easy, but knowing that he's in control, knowing that I'm longing for his kingdom and longing for his priorities, I can sit back and trust and know he did exactly what he wanted to in that circumstance. That he wanted us to have good things from his perspective, not necessarily from my perspective. As we see pain and suffering and hurt. I know all of you are praying, have prayed recently uh, for people who are hurting in your life, for your own pain, for your own suffering, for your own hardship. This passage isn't a passage to be used in the health and wealth, the name it and claim it. It's misused a lot for name it and claim it. It's misused a lot to say, hey, whatever you ask, of God, he's going to give to you. So I'm going to pray that God will give me a new car or a mansion or whatever. A lot of times his answer is to allow you to continue in the pain that you're in because he uses that weakness to bring about grace to you, to those around you. That, that I'm thinking about Peter and First Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. This is an absolutely secure inheritance that you have, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, that we're looking forward to that kingdom that we've been talking about. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, so that you have been grieved by various trials. Now for a time, if necessary, Wait, you're telling me that sometimes God allows us to experience trials and pain and suffering that are necessary? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what Jesus said. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, when you maintain your faith through difficulty, through hardship, through trial, when you maintain your faith through that, it says something about your faith. It's a true and tested faith. More precious 
than gold that perishes though it be tested by fire. That it may be found to result, and listen to this, and think about the kingdom, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What if God is more concerned with his eternal kingdom and the long-term fruit of the gifts, the long-term fruit of your prayers, than he is about the immediate context in just giving you what you want. You see, the whole idea of this passage in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that God is continuously moving and upsetting and changing our hearts so that we long for the things that he longs for. And as our motivations change, as our hearts change, then we pray and we long for the good things that Jesus says. That we long for his priorities, for his value, for his kingdom. So that as we enjoy this union with Christ, he answers our prayers. That's the image that we're meant to see. Ask, seek, knock, long for what God longs for. He knows you don't. He knows we struggle with the flesh. He knows we struggle with a, with a human finiteness that can't fully wrap our minds around the kingdom of God, that worry about where our next meal's coming from, that worry about the things we have. He knows that we're weak. Ask, seek, knock that he would change that. Our priorities have to shift. That a lot of times that we receive his grace and humility through a no. And that's a good thing. It's not always a fun thing, but it's a good thing. So what do we do with this text? I think, first of all, we acknowledge that God wants us, as we've been talking about for weeks, to live in an ongoing relationship with him a relationship where our hearts are changed and we long for the kingdom, that we long for our motives to be pure so that we do the things of God not because of external pressures but because of an internal heart change. That we trust in Him, we rely on Him, that we don't worry about the things of this earth. And that as we do that, then our communion with Him becomes so normal that asking, seeking, and knocking is something that's as natural as breathing to us. In our private prayer life, in our corporate prayer life, together that we as a group ask, seek, and knock together that God would do great things through this collection of human beings right here. That we would see the lives that we are around impacted. And that as a result, that He would be glorified. So make this a priority as Jesus instructs you to. I'll close with a, with a quote from E. Stanley Jones in his book, A Song of Ascents. He said, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. So when I'm praying, I'm surrendering to the will of God and I'm cooperating with the will of God. He said, if I throw a boat hook from a boat and I catch hold of the shore and I pull... Do I pull the shore near me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will. 
but aligning my will to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. As it penetrates our heart, we recognize just how weak we are, that that we long for the things we long for, that we are prone to, to seek our own. But Lord, this passage challenges us, Lord, to ask, seek, and to knock, knowing that you are a good father who gives good gifts. Lord, you will correct us when we are selfish. So, Lord, I pray for each and every soul in here tonight that we commit ourselves to asking and seeking and knocking. And as a result, that your spirit would work in us to conform our will to yours, that we might be changed and that we might glorify you. And we pray this in your son's name, through your spirit. Amen.